Multi-Unit Month is brought to you by the DS Group, a multi-unit and multi-brand franchise group that prides itself on operational excellence, speed of service, and the growth of its people within the hospitality space. Welcome to the Multi-Unit Month takeover of the Global Franchise Podcast. I'm Kieran McLoon, editor for Global Franchise Magazine. This is our second instalment of Multi-Unit Month after 2021's flagship event, and we're looking to bring you even more invaluable content around the multi-unit franchising model. Over the course of this month, we'll be bringing you four podcast episodes dedicated entirely to multi-unit franchising. We'll be joined by numerous experts within the field to discuss every element of this business model, including the day-to-day operations of multi-unit operators, funding and legal strategies for multi-unit growth, and the trends dictating 2022 and beyond. For the purposes of this first instalment, however, we're looking at one simple question. Why multi-unit in 2022? It's no surprise that multi-unit franchising is a big deal. After all, according to FranData, over half of all franchise units in the US are controlled by multi-unit operators. There are more than 43,000 of these kinds of operators in the market, and this figure has been rising steadily since multi-unit ownership came to the forefront in the 1980s. And while we'd commonly associate a broad multi-unit portfolio with the QSR segment, the fact is that multi-unit and multi-brand ownership can be found across the board. It's true that 81.96% of QSR units fall under multi-unit ownership, but 71.5% of beauty-focused brands also come under this umbrella. Just over half of all clothing and accessory locations are part of a multi-unit portfolio too. To kick off this year's multi-unit month in style, we're sitting down with Matthew Haller, President and CEO of the International Franchise Association. Haller has been the head of the association since June of 2021 and has been instrumental in leading the IFA through the tail end of the pandemic and towards a bright new future. We wanted to catch up with Matt to cover the fundamentals of multi-unit franchising and what the business model means in 2022. What does he believe defines a successful multi-unit operator and what challenges are they facing in this post-pandemic world? Yeah, multi-unit franchising, you know, simply means, you know, an owner of multiple franchise locations or territories uh, compared to an individual that may own just a single uh, location. Certainly something we're seeing a significant increase uh, in, uh, you know, not not only here in the U.S., but around the globe uh, in terms of trends uh, in franchising. Um, the focus of today's episode is why multi-unit in 2022. So why do you think that this form of franchise ownership is seeing increasingly uh, popular, you know, is an increasingly popular form of franchising today than even compared to, you know, a few years ago, just before the pandemic? I think it's all about economy of scale um, at both the franchisee and the franchisor side uh, of things. And, you know, multi-unit franchisees tend to be, you know, more well-capitalized, more uh, sophisticated operators than, you know, somebody that only has the means to own and operate a a single location. Obviously, for for many franchisors, they find, you know, working with uh, fewer total franchisees can be a little bit more of a streamlined approach uh, as well. And I think, you know, given the broader economic issues that we're seeing in terms of inflation and supply chain and labor shortages, you know, those are putting pressure at all levels of every business, but in the franchise business model, it's no different. And so I think that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, increasingly brands are looking for people that do have that economy of scale and the capitalization and liquidity to 
absorb you know some of these uh, increased costs of doing business you know compared with you know somebody who's a maybe a only able to be a solo um, operator. Um, you know, the downside, of course, is franchising, you know, is all about going to business for yourself, but not by yourself. And, you know, while there are still, you know, lots of brands that are focused on bringing in, you know, single unit owners um, and on the, the smaller end of the, the, the lower end of the economic spectrum, uh, you know, the industry is changing. Um, and, you know, consolidation is one of the bigger trends. That we're seeing and you know the bigger getting bigger and you know there's no there's no disputing that that brings me on to my next question quite nicely matt which is when you see these big operators like flynn restaurant group or sun holdings who each have over a thousand locations under their banners um do you think that those kinds of you know that kind of scale impacts the significance of these smaller operators with five ten or even just one unit or do you think that any kind of franchise owner is you know promoting the cause of franchising in their own way and is equally significant I don't think it negatively impacts a smaller uh, operator. I, I think that there's there's space in the business model for, you know, the, the the super franchisees and you know smaller medium sized operators. I think at the end of the day, it's all about the performance, right? If if you're an operator and you can perform with you know five or fewer locations, um, you know your franchisor is going to be happy with you, and you're going to be happy with your bottom line, and you're probably taking care of your employees. Um, so I think it, it really is, it, it, there, there's space in, in franchising for everybody. Um, you know, certainly the, the trend is up to the, to the larger side. Um, but you know, those, uh, you know, Flynn and Son both are, you know, the extremes, um, and there are extremes on the other end as well. And, and I think, you know, people still do well, um, you know, throughout the, the business model, if, you know, they follow, uh, the playbook, if the franchisor is providing, you know, the right amount of support um, to all of their franchisees in, in meaningful ways. And uh, my final question for you, Matt, is just on the challenges that multi-unit franchisees are facing at the moment. I mean, we've seen recent proposals such as the PRO Act and the FAST Act, and I know you spoke about these at um, the most recent IFA convention. Um, but what are some of the, the main challenges you think facing multi-unit franchisees, and what is the IFA doing to combat these moving forward? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there are challenges that are only being faced by multi-unit franchisees. These are uh, entire business model challenges. There are challenges for franchisors of all sizes and all sectors. There are challenges for franchisees um, of all sizes and in all sectors. You know, there there is a certain segment of uh, you know policymakers that frankly want to change franchising for their own benefit, and you know it's largely driven by organized labor's uh, attempt to maintain relevancy here certainly in the U.S., but they pursue changes like the PRO Act or the FAST Act under the guise of helping uh, improve workforce conditions. Uh, but the reality is that workforce conditions in franchise businesses are equal and in most cases better than uh, non-franchise businesses if you do an apples-to-apples comparison of you know, a franchise restaurant versus a non-franchise restaurant uh, or any other sector for that matter. And so, you know, we think franchising, you know, it works when, you know, brands are providing the right amount of support. Franchisees are, you know, able to, you know, get a return on their investment, monetize their equity and take care of their employees. And nine out of 10 times, you know, that is something that we're seeing is very successful. We've got to fight some of these threats at the public policy level. And, you know, we're grateful for our members um, who have helped us uh, lead some of those fights. Uh, It's not just something that, you know, the association and its staff are doing. Uh, we have lots of franchisees, um, including some of the biggest and all the way down to some of the smallest that have helped us 
you know, push back on things like the PRO Act uh, in Congress, as well as the FAST Act, which is kind of a, a version of the PRO Act or some of the PRO Act policies in the state of California that uh, discriminately targets the, the restaurant um, franchise sector um, and would, would allow uh, an out, unelected body to set wages and benefits specifically for franchise-owned restaurants within chains that have 30 or more locations uh, nationwide. So certainly a, 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 a shot across the bow, so to speak, at the, uh, the franchise model and specifically the restaurant sector, but I'm confident that we'll be able to defeat that um, with the right engagement um, in California and hopefully stop that from spreading to other states or, or even other countries. Matt touched upon the economies of scale, which is an idea that we'll be hearing a lot about throughout this month, as it's one of the main drivers for operators to level up from single unit to multi-unit ownership. Well-capitalised operators are also attractive for brands, as they're proven investors who understand the franchising model and the responsibilities of a successful franchisee. That being said, it was good to hear Matt touch on the significance of smaller multi-unit operators and how everything ultimately boils down to performance. A mountain of franchise units under one organisation looks great on paper, but if the operational excellence isn't there to back it up, then it's potentially damaging for the original franchise brand. Our next guest is joining us to further contextualise the multi-unit model and discuss its international potential. Bill Edwards is the founder of Edwards Global Services and has been immersed in the international side of franchising for a number of years. He has seen the rise of multi-unit ownership firsthand and is perfectly equipped to cover its historic use and its potential in the future. From my experience uh, doing international franchising for many years, it's, um, it started as a domestic tool where uh, brands um, were looking for for companies that were already franchisees of, of a brand on a multi-unit basis and uh, looking to add another brand to their portfolio. But in, and then about five years ago, it became very prevalent uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and we began, uh, after that, we began to see it in the U.K. and now through throughout the European Union. And uh, it's, I expect the post-pandemic it'll spread into Asia also, but um, nowadays our 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 work is all international. We're taking brands from their home country into other places, and increasingly we're seeing, especially food and beverage franchisors, seeking out multi-unit and multi-brand franchisees in countries to become their area licensee, adding a brand to their portfolio. Um, these candidates already know franchising. They have experience working with international brands. They have an existing infrastructure. They have real estate assets and they have staff to open and operate new units. So that's a real big plus for uh, a foreign franchisor going into a country for the first time is to get someone who actually knows what it's all about and has a track record that we can uh, we can access. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like multi-unit is certainly growing and it uh, makes sense that you say a lot of your client base is based in food and beverage because the stats are telling us that, you know, the QSR segment is where you're seeing most of those multi-unit operators, at least in the States. And I think that is reflected internationally. Um, 
when we're looking at the the challenges and the problems associated with multi-unit growth, I imagine that they are relatively similar to what you'll see across the entire franchising landscape. But do you think there are any particular challenges for multi-unit franchisees in 2022? And how are you seeing franchisees or their franchisors overcome those this year? Well, I, I think from the franchisor standpoint, it's it's um, it's critical to know what the multi-unit franchisee in the other country what their experience was with the brand mm. that they already have, and also to find out, to find out and, uh, what their capital capabilities are. Coming out of the pandemic, especially, we're, we need to be very careful about uh, financials and assets available for new investment because uh, a franchisor granting a license to a, a multi-unit franchisee is, uh, needs them to have capital. Uh, from the uh, franchisee perspective, uh, I think they need to be very careful about what the brand, the market is for that this new brand. You mentioned the difference between QSR and casual restaurants. Um, uh, there's a very big difference in market between those two. There are a lot of countries where you see mostly QSR and very little casual or full service restaurants. So if I'm a franchisee, say of uh, Starbucks in the UK, and um, multi-unit, and I'm looking at a restaurant brand to bring into the country, I need to be sure that I've evaluated the market so I know what the customer base is going to be and projected out what the investment and revenues are going to be. Right. And um, when you're looking at utilizing the multi-unit franchising model um, to expand internationally, do you think that the the size of a country or a region determines the effectiveness of the model? For example, with somewhere like the UK, where we've got a smaller island, are master deals often kind of the preferred method of growth? Well, I think that may have been the case in the past in the UK. Uh, I think you're seeing more now, especially in food and beverage where they don't really allow master franchising, it's build, own, and operate primarily. You're seeing regional licensees or area licensees uh, in the UK, and so it, it's a good fit uh, because you can you can measure move move the country from sixty to seventy million people down to say six to ten million for a region, maybe even less. Um, but I think this depends on the type of franchise. Uh, an F and B franchise increasingly works with multi-unit, uh, multi-brand operators uh, on, an, as I said, on a regional basis. So they might grant uh, eight, 10 licenses in the UK over time, uh, which is really about the same as when you go to New Zealand, you might have one or two. So in the food and beverage sector, where it's build, own, and operate, you're looking more at the, the local population when you get to uh, uh, other types of franchises that allow master franchising, uh, we haven't really seen the uh, the pickup on multi-unit, multi-brand, except in the case of, uh, of an interesting type of franchise that I'll, I'll deal with a bit, a bit later. But the, the model can work for either New Zealand or it can work for a bigger country, as long as the, license, the franchisor is willing to do regional licenses rather than granting a country, a big country license to a, a multi-unit operator that maybe doesn't have the territorial uh, bandwidth that they need to, to do a country. 
And uh, my final question for you, Bill, is just what advice would you share with a franchisee who is perhaps looking to identify the right brand to develop their mobile unit portfolio? You haven't necessarily got to, you know, advise which brand you recommend they partner with, but how will they evaluate what works best for them? Well, I think that they have to look at their existing infrastructure and their staff capabilities and their financial capability to determine what they bring to the new brand and what they can actually do, reasonably do, as far as opening and operating or uh, new units over time. I think it, it's, uh, and for the food brand, let's say an F&B franchise, they want to know whether the supply chain is compatible with the one that the uh, multi-units already, already have, or are they going to have to develop a new supply chain? Increasingly, supply chain is uh, very, very critical situation for us worldwide, not necessarily between countries, but internally uh, to make sure that we've got the right resources. One of the interesting things that I wanted to mention that we have experience with is uh, food and beverage, multi-unit, multi-brand operators looking at non-food franchises. Uh, One example is in the uh, property management sector for the salon, salon studio type of franchises. Um, Brands like uh, that have just entered the UK like Phoenix Salon Suites or big ones in the US like Sola Salon Studios, they are real estate plays. And the reason that multi-unit F&B operators like them is because they only need one employee per unit, not 60 to 100. (laughs) And they already have real estate access. So I think you're going to begin to see the um, multi-unit we almost always think of as food and beverage. I think you're going to see that change. and We're going to be seeing multi-unit operators of different types of franchises be looking at new brands to bring into their country. Bill's main focus was on the risks that franchisors can sometimes take when choosing an expansive multi-unit partner in a foreign market and his advice to brands that they need to understand the nuance of their industry and the capabilities of their potential partner will no doubt prove invaluable to franchisors taking the leap for the first time. In this post-pandemic world, caution certainly seems to be the word of the moment. This certainly shouldn't discourage brands from embarking on international growth with experienced partners, but they need to ensure that there's a lot of due diligence carried out ahead of time to avoid any nasty surprises down the road. Our final guest for this episode is Michael Collum, who leads the consulting practice for franchising, restaurants and hospitality at Moss Adams. Michael has served as a finance and operations executive, as well as a board member and investor at numerous concepts over his career. He joins us today to discuss the benefits that franchisees can experience when becoming multi-unit operators and the numerous ways in which they can strategize the growth of their own portfolio. After all, while multi-unit franchising is a relatively standard practice nowadays, there are multiple methods that entrepreneurs can use to scale up. Uh, There are a couple of obvious strategies that can be used for growth. Uh, You can expand through your current franchise system, or you can expand through other concepts and brands. Within your own system, um, these might seem obvious, but you can go uh, build new units. Yeah. Typically, that's done through a development agreement, a legal agreement that spells out what both the franchisor and the franchisee must deliver and when. And then you can also acquire the units from other franchisees. 
in a in a transaction called the FDF franchise to franchise transaction. Right. Or you can acquire uh, uh, units from the company, and that's through a process obvi- uh, typically called refranchising. Um, and and you can expand through other concepts and brands as well. Same way, uh, building new units or acquiring existing units. These approaches can be influenced by your current situation, mm-hmm. your size, whether you're a one-unit operator all the way up to being large equity-backed or public firms, your financial capabilities, uh, location, and geography. Um, your size and influence can be an asset, your performance against commitments to your current brand, uh, following the rules, making payments, meeting current development commitments, and being a good citizen of the brand in which you operate. Approval from your current franchisor uh, for additional sites is typically needed. We can talk a bit later about the influx of large equity investors into franchising, which has changed the game quite significantly. And there are a number of other key considerations. If we have time at the end, we can uh, we can pile on. So I know a big part of um, multi-unit franchising that's kind of risen to prominence in recent years is multi-brand franchising, which you touched upon there is when, you know, big franchisees bring in other concepts to their portfolio for a number of reasons. Um, And when we're looking at multi-brand franchising, do you think that brand synergies, the ways in which an operator's portfolio kind of interacts with each other, is one of the most important considerations when building that sort of network? Or are there other factors that should influence that sort of um, development on the franchisee side? I think yes and yes. That's my uh, the quick answer. There are several considerations that can or cannot work together, or uh, they can work for you or against you. Many depend again on your person, your your situation. Yeah. Does the expertise you've developed in your past apply broadly to a new concept, new business, uh, such as running restaurants, building teams, multitasking, community involvement, and there are things that you can apply and and leverage synergies uh, from in a new business, such as the ability to hire, uh, build teams, uh, understanding and applying capital, working capital requirements in the new business and, and folding that into your, your, your existing business. Very important. Uh, geography comes into play. Uh, if you have units in New Mexico and Dubai, guess what? You might be on airplanes. A bunch, and you know the synergies come into play. The support structure, very important. Uh, supply chain, whether or not your suppliers and distributors can serve your new business effectively, or do you have to go out and find other suppliers and distributors to serve that other business differently than your past? Also, lawyers, accountants, the the way you administrate the business, you can leverage existing people to serve AR, AP, all of those kinds of things, insurance people, uh, IT people, psychiatrists, more lawyers, more IT people, you know, you know, that's, that's a bad joke, but uh, you have to think through all of those things as you're uh, leveraging a new business versus your existing business and whether you have the right people in place and in, in, in firms. It certainly sounds like it's an incredibly, um, you know, complex step to do, go towards multi-brand franchising. And in that sense, would you say that, um, you know, you kind of have to have a real awareness of how the franchising model works before you embark on something like multi-brand ownership? I think so. And I also believe that you need to do a, your, your homework. You need to understand the new franchisor um, that you're going to be dealing with, their reputation, uh, go out and interview a lot of existing franchisees, and typically those franchisees in the new system will want to talk to you. Mm. They want to attract good 
good talent into their system. And also, you have to do your homework on uh, your existing brand and whether there are limitations legally built into the franchise agreement that preclude you getting involved with certain other businesses. In the past, that's been a bigger issue than it is today uh, with these large equity firms now buying many different brands across many industries. Franchisors have tended to step down in their application of rules uh, towards what what other brands you can come and bring into play, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I was curious about that, actually, that kind of contractual limitation to the kind of brands that you can bring in. Is it often the case that you know, are there sort of some hard and fast rules where it's almost like the same industry you can't bring in? Or is it generally, as you say, most brands have gone, well, this is just the way the industry is going and they've adapted to that? Well, that's a great question. And and we're not lawyers. So um, I think that as you're talking to a, a franchise attorney, um, that world has evolved. Decades ago, um, they applied a very broad definition of what could be competitive to your existing mm. Uh, business in the franchise agreements. Um, again, with these large uh, equity firms getting involved, uh, they have backed off somewhat in applying hard and fast rules, to your point. And it, um, at the end of the day, um, if you are a hamburger chain, fast food hamburger chain, and you're trying to go be a, another fast food hamburger chain, you're going to get some pushback and there might be language in their franchise agreement that precludes you from going down that path. Uh, in the past, some franchisees have had workarounds um, for some of that, but it, but investigate it. You don't want to slow a deal down because you get stuck in legal mud um, in trying to to apply these rules. Absolutely, um, and we've we've touched upon there, Mike, the kind of the challenges of uh, multi-unit and multi-brand scaling. But what would you say are some of the the benefits that come with being an expansive multi-unit owner that smaller franchisees, perhaps owners who only have one or two locations, um, may miss out on in their entrepreneurial journey? That's a very important question, and I, I, let's start with the assumption that you can, or you have, or can acquire the required knowledge to run that business. Let's let's put that as a separate issue. Yeah, size generally can and does matter. Uh, size um, can be an indication of success, uh, and I underscore the word indication. Uh, thus, being more attractive to prospective employees, service providers, and customers. That way, if you can hire more people as, as you grow, you have more people to delegate to. And maybe you can take a day off once in a while, which mm-hmm. uh, I'm not overstating that issue. I know many franchisees that work seven days a week, 16-hour days. Yeah, You can also establish purchasing power with your suppliers, especially if the various businesses are kind of in the same industry. Uh, if you're acquiring food and paper goods and so forth to sell um, size matters because you can work your delivered cost per unit down and improve your bottom line. You also have the better ab- ability to leverage marketing dollars, especially in a given trade area, which is very important in order to, uh, to go on TV, radio, however you're going to market the business. As you grow, you will receive more notice. Uh, service providers will want to work with you. And by the way, in their eyes, as a former CFO, I can say this, you are considered to be more likely, perhaps, to pay your bills on time, and, and don't under, uh, under uh, underestimate the uh, the impact of that. So, 
and my my final question for you, Mike, is just um, kind of on the future of multi-unit franchising and multi-unit ownership. Do you kind of envision any big trends coming this year that change the way that multi-units, uh, multi-unit owners rather operate? Or do you think that now we're kind of hopefully on the tail end of COVID that things are going to stabilize and stay fairly consistent for the next year or two? Well, that's a great question. And some of these thoughts um, come from talking with many CEOs and CFOs, investors, board members, and the like. Right. These are general comments. It really will depend on the nature of your business. Um, as I say these things, I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody does. What uh, some consistencies and what the outlook is for the balance of this year. Let's start with people. I always like to start with people. The ability to tr- attract, hire, train retain good people will continue to be highly challenging throughout the balance of this year. We hear this daily from key executives across many industries. Wage rates and benefits will continue to rise either through government mandates, especially in the U.S., or simply because markets and trade areas will require you to pay more to attract good people in order just to stay open and operate. Um, There will be um, Uh, additional investments increasing throughout the balance of the earth in the application of technology to reduce the reliance on people. Uh, This will take time to implement from experience, both technically and also to embrace it within the the culture of your operation, your people, and in your leadership. Also, I believe labor unions, the whole organization trajectory of labor unions will continue to build in momentum. This will further impact wage rates and costs uh, throughout the balance of this year. Right. Let's talk about revenues and prices. Inflation will continue to impact everything, even if oil prices begin to come down, uh, which obviously is uh, driven by many things, and not the least of which is war. The delivered cost of supplies and inventories will continue to be higher, maybe much higher than pre-COVID levels. Um, The CFOs we speak to uh, weekly and daily Uh, are planning for this and continue to adjust their balance of your forecasts to reflect higher costs as a result. Uh, Supply chain disruptions also fold into that, and that will take time to resolve. Maybe towards the end of the year and beyond, uh, we'll start to see that be resolved. Stay tuned. Uh, It's going to be spotty and vary by type of product being sourced and the location from which it's being sourced. In order to offset inflation, Operators will continue to raise prices to their customers to remain somewhat viable financially. It's one of the last items that they have to apply uh, to try to remain viable. And we're seeing this across many industries. Uh, Large equity investors will continue to be involved with franchisors and franchisees. Uh, Very interesting there. You know, several years ago, they began to go down a path that, that you've probably heard about called asset light. Yeah where equity firms don't want to have to invest in the hard assets, property, plant, and equipment. And they've applied um, financial engineering, such as sale leasebacks, to take those assets off their books. Now they're investing in franchisees, which is uh, very interesting. And um, uh, But again, applying financial engineering methods to take certain assets off their books, even if they become a large franchisee. So hopefully that answers your question. Those are, those are some key things I believe are going to be impacting us for the balances of this year. 
Michael's points about the various synergies that can come from multi-unit or multi-brand ownership will be particularly relevant for experienced franchisees that are looking to build upon their existing networks. Evergreen business skills such as building teams and working out supply chains won't just make the franchisees' life easier, they'll make them an attractive prospect for other brands looking to bring experienced operators on board. That brings us to the end of this first episode of the Multi-Unit Month Takeover of the Global Franchise Podcast, but make sure to tune in next week when we'll be speaking with three multi-unit and multi-brand operators themselves to learn about the highs and lows of the individuals directly immersed in this form of business ownership. And of course, to keep up to date with all the latest Multi-Unit Month content, visit globalfranchise.com forward slash multi-unit month.